if you look at a country as being a hotel, what makes a good hotel? Like, why would you pick one hotel over another hotel, Robert? Typically amenities, location, reputation, um, restaurants, things like that. Maybe safety too, right? Yeah, safety. Yeah, so I guess that was almost presupposed, but yes. <laughs> it's, it is presupposed, yeah, but yeah. We, we, we often forget that. Like, you should treat any country as if it were a hotel. You want people to come and stay there. You want those nice amenities. You want the good mm -hmm. restaurants. Mm -hmm. You want the scenery. You want the safety. But if you look at what's happening in the world today, that's not what's happening for a lot of countries. They're not focused on those things. They're focused on trying to protect what they have mm -hmm. by enforcing more controls and more rules and more restrictions on money inflow. Mm. And that's not going to work, just like it wouldn't work with a hotel. And I, I think this has, there are wide reaching impl uh, implications when you start to go down this theory, because would you want to stay at a hotel where you have to pay half of your earnings to the hotel while you're staying there, <laughs> in addition to the fees for staying at the hotel? Probably definitely, not, right? Definitely not. Doesn't make any sense at all. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. 
Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res three-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Samson Mao, welcome to the What Is Money show. Thanks, Robert. Great to be on. It's great to have you here. Um, you probably don't need an introduction for my audience, but just by way of quick intro, you are the founder of Jan3, which is a Bitcoin technology company focused on accelerating Bitcoin adoption around the world. Um, what could you maybe just start there? Could you just tell us a little bit about um, the vision over at Jan3 and, and what you guys are working on? Sure. So Jan3's mission, as you said, is to accelerate Bitcoin adoption or hyper-Bitcoinization. And we see two approaches to doing that. One is from the top down, engaging with nation states, governments, politicians, um, educating them and teaching them about why Bitcoin would be good for them and their countries. Uh, the other part is the Aqua wallet, which is the wallet we have under development now. It was first started at Blockstream, but it's a Bitcoin and liquid wallet. And we hope to have uh, basically native stablecoin support, so USDT in that wallet on Liquid. And we hope that by launching this and pushing it to, uh, to the developing markets and LATAM, we can get more Bitcoin adoption by having an easy way to get into Bitcoin through stablecoins. Because there is a innate need for stablecoins because people are seeking out dollar-denominated value. So I think that is uh, one of the prongs of attack that we have that we can get more Bitcoin adoption. That's really cool. Yeah, I was just mentioning offline. Uh, definitely seems to me that the global South is just going to be a major center of gravity for this whole movement. Um, seeing that they're the most taken advantage of in the current fiat scheme. Um, so that's really exciting. I think we... We got on this podcast because someone tweeted at us, and I don't remember exactly what it was about, but I think it was just related to the general question, what is money? Um, do you do you recall exactly what it was that got us uh, to set this up? It was something about money. It all, it's always about money, right? <laughs> so I think it was me theorizing what money is. Um, I think someone, I think it was about Bitcoin is stored energy, and I said something... Uh, contrary to that and uh all right i said something like it is stored energy and then i think you chimed in and said well what is money yeah uh, <laughs> that sounds about right well that is my next question for you actually um you know seems like it's got a lot of answers how would you answer the question what is money well i think it's going to going to be different for different people but my definition of money is Money is simply an abstraction of human time and energy. Mm. And I think that's why I was saying Bitcoin is stored energy. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily stored electrical potential energy. It is human time and energy. Mm. So if you go down to the root of it, money is simply a, a sort of a facilitator for human trade, right? Barter is quite inefficient, but if you can have this abstraction layer where you can... Mm -hmm kind of a store value of goods 
or your time and energy, then you can trade with people and move that into the future. Mm-hmm. So if you break it down to pre-industrial times, you know, you have to make a lot of things yourself. So as a simple example, let's just say making a jacket. So let's say you have a, a kid and you want to make them a jacket because it's cold outside, right? You can spend that time and make them a jacket to keep them warm, but you can also forego fun, a vacation or doing other things too, like leisure and make another one and keep that for the next winter mm. or for another relative or something like that. But you can basically keep doing this and you can store your time in some sort of uh, good or service. Mm. Now, if that is stored in money and the money supply is not corruptible, you can theoretically provide for future generations, maybe tens or hundreds of generations in the future. Mm. So that's why money is very important. But that's also why there's a big incentive to Mm. corrupt the money supply, because if you can corrupt the money supply, manipulate the money, you can basically get people to do things for free. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. This, a lot of people on Bitcoin Twitter debate about this is Bitcoin, a battery thing, right? Obviously you can put labor into it, or you can expend energy to create it via the mining process, but that doesn't mean you can then convert, you can't plug Bitcoin into your car or house or something to power it, obviously, but it is money, right? So if if it's money that's functioning properly, you could redeem it for anything the market can produce, including energy. So it has like this, it's obviously an analogy. It's not actually a battery. <laughs> Bitcoin's not something you carry around and plug into things. Um, but it does seem to have like this kind of write-only feature for energy, right? You can put your labor into it or put energy into it and then use that to redeem the labor, labor from others or energy from others. Um, And that also, I agree with you, that speaks to the major incentive to corrupt it, which is just to get something for nothing, right? You can, if you can get a hold of that, then you as the thief or confiscator can now obtain that energy just by, by right of, of confiscation or inflation. Yeah. But I think it's important to make that distinction that it's human time and energy because mm. m- money is not really used for other people. Like if you like, go to an animal like a dog and you say, I'll give you money, it's not going to work, right? <laughs> or let's say if there was an alien race out there and you say, well, we'll give you some money, they probably won't care unless they want a, another human to do something for them. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really pertaining to people and our ability to use technology and use our work and move that into the future for prosperity to build on top of something that came before it. Yeah, it's a good point. It's very metaphorical in a way. Like we think a metaphor is like a way to understand one experience in terms of another experience perhaps. And I guess we need, you need some common language to have economic trade, right? We can't just, uh, we can't all just be, as you said, barter doesn't work. It's inefficient. So there needs to be some common denominator for people to think in and talk in and communicate in. And um, maybe that's why it speaks to, like to conceptualize it, as you said, as an abstraction of time or energy. Those are the most fundamental inputs to any economic process. So maybe that's kind of two sides of the same coin that 
money is uh, some kind of economic metaphor, but that's why it's an abstraction for, for time, human time and energy, because those are the inputs to every process that that's relevant to human beings. Yeah. And money is valuable because human time and energy is finite, right? We mm. have fixed term lives and we have a fixed amount of energy. Like you cannot, you cannot work at the same level when you're mm -hmm. old, right? You have to save when you're young for when you can no longer work at that same output, right? So mm -hmm. that's why money is very important. Also, because it is an abstraction, it is intangible. And this is why historically other forms of money have failed. Because if you say money is intangible, Bitcoin is the ultimate intangible thing. It's purely digital. It doesn't mm. exist in the physical realm. So if you go back like a few years or, you know, some companies are still looking into this, but there, there's the whole concept of using blockchain to do X mm -hmm. because then you have a, a immutable and incorruptible record, right? But they keep forgetting that garbage in is garbage out. So I guess my favorite one is supply chain blockchains. So you can mm -hmm. use a blockchain to anchor a supply chain. So you know it went through this place and this part was sourced from here and then here. But you can kind of trace it through. But it, if at any point you're anchoring that data to whatever blockchain, if that data is garbage, then the whole thing is garbage, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you have the inverse problem of money, which is you're trying to anchor truth like physical real world things mm. to an intangible thing, but there is no direct connection there. So money has the opposite problem. You have this abstraction of human time and energy, but you're trying to anchor it to something physical in the world, like mm. a, a seashell, a, mm -hmm. a gold coin or a piece of paper. And that's where it's a very weak connection, just like the other part where you're trying to anchor some physical truth to mm -hmm. A blockchain right so there's no direct connection and this is why bitcoin is so powerful because you don't need to anchor anything to it it is just bitcoin and we just say bitcoin is money and now mm -hmm. the two things are one in the same yeah that's an excellent point um it's like we needed the advantages of digitization or in to informationalize something because if money is just an abstraction then obviously the more abstract it is the more useful but the problem with abstraction is you're in the realm of just ideas, right? Which are infinitely replicable. So you can't, there's no scarcity, right? There's a double spend and inflation. If I share an idea with you, it's like, well, I didn't lose the idea. I just shared it with you. And now we both have it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work for money, right? <laughs> Obviously you just, yeah. it gets hyperinflated. Um, it reminds me too, what you're saying there, Nick Zabo used to say that something like I think you use the term blockchains preserve truth and lies equally. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you have to have the proof of work element, you know? And, um, and the, I guess the, or the connection you're describing, that's kind of the Oracle problem, right? It's like, you can't know whatever you're putting onto that record. And if it's something about physical reality, you're, you have counterparty risk in the Oracle, like whoever put the data on that, that database or that ledger, you can't know if it was truth or true or false, but Bitcoin sort of obviates the whole thing just by being this self-contained system of, of just what well, it's connected to the real world via mining, but it's not taking anything physical from the real world and putting it on the ledger. It just has a self-contained quantity of, of UTXOs or, or mm -hmm. Bitcoin, I guess, to be more general. 
Um, it doesn't seem like you can replicate that, right? It's just kind of a one-time thing. Yeah, it is a one-time thing. I mean, people have tried and I think 20,000 people have tried or companies have tried yeah. and we see the, the effect, but nothing can be taking the place of Bitcoin simply because, you know, it is the reinvention of money. Mm-hmm. And you can only do that once, just like you can only invent the wheel once or discover fire once. Yes. Yeah. If any, maybe it's the same impulse, right? The the impulse to shitcoin is the same impulse that Bitcoin is fixing in the world, right? Central banking is kind of like the ultimate shitcoin monopoly. <laughs> just produce these things ad infinitum and externalize the cost. Well, you fix that by having something that no one can counterfeit or corrupt. Um, what? Okay. Good definition on money. I agree with that. How do you tie this into economic prosperity though? Cause these are slightly different topics. If you only think, you know, one level deep about money, you might think that, well, I don't have enough money. So why don't we just produce more of it? You know, a lot of socialists say this, all the time on Twitter and elsewhere, just print more money, UBI, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you, how do we delaminate those two concepts? Because clearly printing money does not create more prosperity, yet the character of money seems important to economic prosperity. So how do you disentangle that? Well, it's a complex topic. You can get more prosperity by printing money, but it'll come at the cost of someone else somewhere else so right. i don't know have you ever watched an anime like uh, full metal mm-hmm. alchemist i used to watch dragon ball z when i was a kid <laughs> right but in full metal alchemist it's about alchemy and they have this thing called the law of equivalent exchange mm. which is basically you can't get something out of nothing um, mm. to be to be short so if a country let's say the u.s is printing money it is exporting that cost somewhere else so someone else is suffering and they can do that because the dollar is basically you the unit of account for the world and a lot of the debt around the world as manufactured by the world bank and the imf is also dollar denominated debt Mm -hmm. so in effect they can print money and they can gain prosperity from that printing but somebody else somewhere else like we're talking about the global south earlier mm-hmm. is probably paying for that and you also have a very direct um an even smaller microcosm of that in the example of france and this the cfa mm-hmm. and the 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 de facto colonies of france in africa right they they manage the money supply for all these african countries which means they can extract value from those countries. They can extract their raw materials basically for free mm-hmm. by devaluing the currency. And they don't really have a choice, right? Well, now mm-hmm. they do with Bitcoin, but historically they haven't had a choice. And that's basically how you get free stuff. You can get free gold, free diamonds, free oil, you name it, if you can control the money. And it goes back to the original thing, which is money is a way to incentivize other humans, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can control the money, you can directly control people. You can make them yeah. do things you want them to do. Either mine stuff for you, give you that stuff, or fight in wars for you. Yes. Okay, now that's a that's a great point. And um, to manipulate the quantity of money, 
what I'm hearing you say, and as I understand it, can be a way to gain prosperity, but not to create any new prosperity, right? You're basically redistributing purchasing power from one from savers, right? Savers and dollars to new recipients or first recipients of dollars, for instance. Um, and I interpret that as, you know, you're transitioning from the positive sum game of free market economics into this zero sum game of socialism or central banking. Um, how do we, that's obviously, um, there's a, there's a, there's a pernicious problem here though, because it's like, I call it a cognitive optical illusion when you're printing money, like everyone thinks they're getting richer because nominal prices are going up and it sort of disguises this whole theft. I mean, I don't know what you call this, right? It's just theft. You, you printed money, someone else is forced to use, you're stealing from them. Mm-hmm. How do we penetrate that illusion? Because so many people are caught, like you start talking about printing money and they just think, well, my house is up, the stock prices are up, et cetera, et cetera. That's the scene, right? The nominal increase in value, but the unseen is this decline in purchasing power per unit. And it seems very hard without getting trapped in abstract language and economic esotericism to talk about this. So like, how do we, how do we pierce the veil and help people see that they're trapped in a big scam? Yeah, it's a really difficult thing. I mean, I believe Bitcoin is the way that people can learn and get out of that kind of rut that they're stuck in, in terms of their thinking. But it comes down to just human nature and what you can accept um, as a norm or as if it's okay. So Mm -hmm. if you print money, people are generally okay with it because they don't see it, right? Mm -hmm. You you can mask it and say it's 2% inflation. You can control the metrics by which you measure inflation or all those things. Like CPI is very subjective, right? It's directly manipulatable and controllable based on the definitions that any body uses to define inflation. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, people generally don't want to see things get more expensive that they care about. But if you can boil the water slowly enough, then they don't see it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think Bitcoin brings you back to a lot of thinking and reasoning about free markets because Bitcoin is free market money. There's no way that someone can manipulate it for any significant duration of time. Like, mm-hmm. yes, you can buy a bunch of it and dump it and spike the price up or down, but long-term you can't really keep that up because there's the energy input to create Bitcoin and to use Bitcoin. But um, let's say for example, um, you know, you don't want to pay more for stuff. You don't want to see your savings be eroded. But mm. if the, the government said one day, you know, the cost of uh, water is going to double, you'd probably be up in arms, right? But mm-hmm. if they can turn on the money printer and inflate the money supply, you're still going to pay more for it because you're, everything you're earning is lower. Mm-hmm. But what you see is the number on the sheet is not mm-hmm. the same, is, is going to be the same. And, um, you know, they can kind of use this human dissonance in their thinking mm-hmm. to uh, game the whole system, right? But people, I think, are starting to wake up and understand that money printing is money printing. And mm-hmm. there's like, there are a lot of fundamental truths that people will be rediscovering in the coming years and decades. Like um, another one is energy 
is important, right? <laughs> we had the <laughs> we 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 have the ESG movement and the environmental movement saying we should shut down nuclear plants and you know stop all these other things. But the, at the end of the day, you're dependent on energy. Human civilization is dependent on energy. But somehow we've lost that thinking, just like we've lost the understanding of what money is. Mm. So I think if you can fix the money supply, educate people about what money is all the other pieces will come back and fall into place. Yeah, it's so... Statists or bureaucrats, I suppose, get this kind of plausible deniability when prices are going up. Like we saw this over the past two years, right? When gas prices are surging, Joe Biden's on Twitter blaming gas station owners. Yeah, and it's like, were we not even going to talk about the six trillion dollars that were just printed over the past year? Like, it's amazing how effective, how simple yet effective of an illusion it is, I guess. And maybe it's just amazing to people like us that are money nerds that look at this stuff all the time. But it seems not that complicated. <laughs> um, but maybe people yeah. just don't spend much time thinking about it. Well, people definitely are not spending much time thinking about it, right? No. And I think this is why initiatives to educate people, uh, um, either through things like your show or going out and engaging with politicians and you know, governments is important because we have mm -hmm. to get them back on track. I don't think it's that people can't understand money. Mm -hmm. I, I think fully people really do know what money is. They just don't have the right understanding of it right like there's a experiment that's that was done where you had two monkeys in two cages and they both performed the same task one was rewarded with a grape and the other i think with a cucumber and eventually the one that got paid in cucumbers he was getting angry because he could see the other guy getting <laughs> grapes and that's more <laughs> valuable right he understands i want that more than a cucumber mm -hmm. but if a monkey can understand that then i'm pretty sure people can understand what money is but they just have been fooled or distracted by, you know, watching TV or the mainstream media and weather balloons and things like that. And they just yeah. don't pay attention to the bigger problem or the important things in life. Yeah, that's a great point. I saw someone tweet this recently that um, the fiat currency complex, uh, a necessary ingredient of the fiat currency complex was financial illiteracy. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, yeah, it, it's not that complicated, but it seems like a lot of things people are paying attention to in the world, media, education, et cetera, are designed perhaps to not highlight <laughs> the truth of money or economics. Um, and so if we going back to this relationship between money and prosperity, I would assume you'd agree that like it's prosperity is more like how much capital we can accumulate in the world, right? The things that actually that we use, right? Goods and services and capital and um, capital is kind of an amplifier of human labor. Obviously, printing money is not accumulating capital. It's just we're redistributing capital effectively. So how what is it about the character of money that does influence the accumulation of capital or, or economic prosperity, because again, these things are still kind of, they're connected, even though they're not the same thing. And so I, I have a difficult time. Like you get into saying where things are, I describe money as like a non, it's a, what do I say? 
money is not capital, right? It's it's like the most liquid form of capital is one, I'll say one thing, but then you say, well, money's not capital because it's not the stuff. It's not the factories, the goods and whatnot. And people are like, wait a minute, you just said it's the most liquid form of capital. And we're like, okay, need to disentangle this a little bit. So I'm just wondering how you think about it and uh, address that. Yeah, so I would say prosperity is, to to dumb it down, prosperity is making sure things get better and better over time. Mm-hmm. Um, in Chinese culture, there is uh, this thinking that each generation should be better off than the previous generation. So mm-hmm. it, it's sort of woven into the culture. You know, things have to improve and get better. And you, you're striving for that end goal. And again, like going back to the original discussion we're having, if the money supply is corrupted or broken, it's difficult to build on any foundation, right? You can't build a house on quicksand. You have to build mm-hmm. it on a, a strong, solid foundation. And that's probably the most important thing. So without a stable and reliable money, it's difficult to get prosperity. Now, a number of countries, I guess, in the world have reached a certain level of prosperity, but then I, I believe they're declining now. Like mm-hmm. a lot of Western nations, they're starting to decline. Mm-hmm. You're seeing double-digit inflation in Western countries like the UK that have historically been problems faced by the global South, like you know Venezuela, mm-hmm. Argentina, or Turkey, you name it, right? But now it's starting to affect Western nations, especially dominant Western nations like the UK, used to rule a lot of the world right through <laughs> through its power but now they're they're facing the same problems as everyone else and it comes back down to the broken money right mm. um and the inability to understand what money is and how you get prosperity so when money is broken then everything else breaks and people are trying to use money as a tool to control people or some lever they can pull in this cog for the economy. But that just makes it worse. Mm -hmm. And I like to use the example of Switzerland and the UK. So in Switzerland, I think the Swiss people understand what money is as a whole, as a Mm -hmm. society, right? They they love money. They want you to bring money to Switzerland. Money is simply money. Mm -hmm. Like they're happy if you bring a suitcase of money or bring gold bars into Switzerland and store it in Switzerland because that's how you generate prosperity. You have capital incoming, you have investments incoming. Mm-hmm. And I think you're seeing the the global South, especially Latin America, start to understand that. Like in El Salvador, where you just were, they, they really want people to come to El Salvador and invest in El Salvador and bring their money to El Salvador. But a lot of Western nations want to monitor transactions and limit the amount of money you bring in, or even limit investments. So for example, in Canada, we've passed this law uh, earlier this year, which limits foreign investment in property. So they're using property to, uh, they're using this restriction on property to try to enact some sort of centralized control in the economy, right? They want Mm -hmm. property prices to come down or they want more people living in the city instead of people buying property. But anytime you mess with the economics or you mess with policy in this regard, there are a lot of consequences to that. Mm -hmm. And the, the biggest consequence is a decrease in prosperity because you want to attract capital. You want to attract money. And the barrier to a lot of these, um, governments and politicians, I believe, is that they don't understand that. They think, you know, we have to limit the movement and liquidity of money. But that's actually counter 
to getting more prosperity. Mm-hmm. So if you if you look at a country as being a hotel, what makes a good hotel? Like, why would you pick one hotel over another hotel, Robert? Um, typically amenities, location, reputation, um, restaurants, things like that. Maybe safety too, right? Yeah, safety. Yeah, so I guess that was almost presupposed, but yes. <laughs> it's, it is presupposed, yeah, but yeah. We, we we often forget that. Like, you should treat any country as if it were a hotel. You want people to come and stay there. You want those nice amenities. You want the good mm-hmm. restaurants. Mm-hmm. You want the scenery. You want the safety. But if you look at what's happening in the world today, that's not what's happening for a lot of countries. They're not focused on those things. They're focused on trying to protect what they have mm-hmm. by enforcing more controls and more rules and more restrictions on money inflow. Mm. And that's not going to work just like it wouldn't work with a hotel. And I, I think this has, there are wide reaching impl- uh, implications when you start to go down this theory, because would you want to stay at a hotel where you have to pay half of your earnings to the hotel <laughs> while you're staying there in addition to the fees for staying at the hotel? Probably definitely, not, right? Definitely not. doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. So El Salvador is a really nice example. I think President Pekele understands all of this stuff. He used to run a nightclub back in the day. Mm. So he understands the service industry and how to attract people to go to a place. And I, I think that's lost on a lot of people that analyze the, the, the situation there. But he knows that you need the venue. You need the country to be safe, first of all, to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you need to let people spend their money there. And ideally, you can treat them better than another place. So that's why they're looking at creating Bitcoin City, the special economic zone, where there's very low taxes when you domicile your business there, or if you choose mm-hmm. to live there. But you can see this is likely going to be an accelerating trend in the global south because they want capital they want money to come in Mm. so Mm. you have to create the perfect conditions for that and history is a really good teacher for what happens when you don't do that so in the 80s and 90s you had the four asian tigers right you had hong kong singapore south korea taiwan which developed very very rapidly now why were they developing very rapidly it was because you could move money there very quickly. So mm-hmm. they were treating money as money, not mm-hmm. as a tool for control or surveillance. And that's mm-hmm. why they could grow. You have a massive influx of capital, building buildings, building the venue to attract more capital. But if you look at, like, I guess Hong Kong is a good example. Mm-hmm. They've changed a lot. It's difficult to move money to Hong Kong now. It's difficult mm-hmm. to do business in Hong Kong to get a bank account even. And South Korea has capital controls now. So the, it's always coming back to the same point, which is central planning and the corruption of money or the understanding of money that leads to less prosperity. Yeah, that's a great, very simple way to cut through all of it, right? Just the more a country treats money like money, the more prosperity they can uh, create basically inside of their country. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. 
and I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Element. Element is a delicious electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. Element contains the ideal electrolyte ratio. It's got 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Element has no junk. It's got no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS at all. Element is perfectly suited for people that are on a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. And as someone that eats a very heavy meat diet and does a lot of intermittent fasting, I simply love this stuff. So go to drinkelement.com slash breedlove. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash breedlove. And make sure to get a free sample pack with your first purchase. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Privacy is a very important part of freedom, and a VPN, a virtual private network, is what lets you be private online. 
Protecting yourself online is increasingly important as data and identity theft are more and more rampant in our world today. Fortunately, NordVPN is a one-stop shop for all things cybersecurity. Uh, it's incredibly easy to use. You just click one button to mask your internet traffic and even decide which country that it's coming from. Uh, you don't need to be a tech genius to use it, and you can protect up to six devices at a time with NordVPN. So to get your exclusive offer, go to nordvpn.com slash breedlove today when you sign up. I want to circle back to something you said a little bit earlier, and I might be kind of paraphrasing you here, but you described obviously money is something that's very motivational. Uh, you know, I would say it creates and motivates a lot of human action in the world. So it's kind of like one of these primary means to, to control human action, which speaks to, I guess, the incentive to try and control it as you're describing for surveillance and whatnot. Um, but I would say at a minimum, it's at least a tool for social engineering, right? If you can just, if you have a central bank and you can print money, well, then you can actually engineer what people are doing through monetary policy. Um, it, you know, I, I've written about it in slightly stronger terms, maybe something more like a form of slavery. Mm -hmm. How do you view that, like that relationship between, I guess, human time and motivation and the central planning of money? Well, I, I would agree that um, if you have a if you have an obligation to pay a portion of your earnings all the time, it's sort of a form of slavery, right? And mm -hmm. it's just widely accepted and normalized. But I mean, I think this is a reason why it's important that we try to get nation states adopting Bitcoin mm -hmm. because it can re-educate more people about what money is, and hopefully they can reach that same conclusion. Now, there's a lot of uh, implications of um, this angle or this particular rabbit hole when you go down mm -hmm. it, right? Like, should there be tax if you can mm -hmm. inflate the money supply? Because you can look at it as a <laughs> candle that's being burnt on both ends. Mm -hmm. Originally, when you have private bearer money, that's the original money, actually, mm -hmm. then you would need to tax to finance certain things. And it might make sense to do so, like raising funds for defense or for public works. But it was always a very small portion of your income that gets taxed. But they can do that. And it, they, that's basically the only way to finance things because there was no way for you to inflate the money supply. Mm -hmm. But if you have a central bank, they're just invented very recently, you can actually print as much money as you need. So taking Canada as an example, during the, the COVID pandemic, they printed a massive amount of money to run all these programs and you know, buy vaccines and things like that. Mm. But um, you, can, you don't need to tax anyone to finance any operation. Right. You can simply print the money. So mm -hmm. it's almost like this ties in a bit with the whole concept of prosperity. Like, you need to be able to build on a sound foundation, but at the same time, you cannot build on anything if you're basically uh, taxing your population into poverty, right? Mm -hmm. You're burning the candle at both ends because you're mm -hmm. earning less because of inflation and your money is worth less because you're printing more and more money. So, and, and you're taxing them at the same time. Yes. So the candle is just getting obliterated. Yeah. So how can anyone do anything? How can someone buy a house or build a house or 
I don't know, do anything if they have no money. Right. right. And I think we're starting to reach a critical inflection point at which that's really going to become a problem because no one has any more money. And how do you get more money? And this sends you further down this spiral in terms of trying to tax more, right? Yes. There's, there's the, the there's things like tax the rich, right? <laughs> but there's also calculations on that too. Like if you tax all the rich people, it's not enough to finance government for one year, yeah. right? So yeah. <laughs> it's just, uh, it eventually people have to come to the realization that you have to stop trying to corrupt the money supply or influence the money supply or control the money supply and let free market forces take reign. Yeah, it reminds me of the, I saw this sign in, during some of the protests after uh, the COVID hysteria, people were uh, protesting the signs like, if they can just print money, then why do we pay taxes? Mm-hmm. And so it's one of these really like fundamental questions like, well, that, hmm, if you can just print money to, you know, fix problems or give out checks, then why even have taxation at all? Just print all the money you need and um, let it run its course. Obviously, that doesn't work. That's why they don't do it. But um, it definitely highlights the hypocrisy, I guess. And the other thing here is like, it really, you know, no one voted on that. No one voted on the expansion of the money supply. So the the reality of having a central bank in your economy circumvents whatever democratic decision-making, whatever decision-making apparatus you have, it's really just circumvented by the central bank because you, you have this institution that can just produce new money uh, allocated into the economy to redirect human action according to certain policy. And none of that was consented to by the the populace or the voting populace at all right yeah at all just they had no, no say so in it at all yeah. central banking is a massive threat to any liberal democracy and no. actually if you go and read the communist manifesto central banking is a key tenet of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know they like, can uh, do some research and really figure out what's going on but uh it's not good right now no not good it- we're, we're using this word corruption. I would just like to double click on that. How would you define, because what we just described about the central bank, it's like, okay, they can create something that dictates a lot of human action, but with no democratic approval. That seems like institutionalized corruption in my view. How would you define corruption? And, and what when you say corruption of money, how does that, how, how does, what do you mean by that specifically? Well, I would say it's, it's very wide. Um, if you go to gold, it would be debasement of the currency, like mixing it mm-hmm. with other metals that are not gold. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's uh, paper money, then you obviously have counterfeiting. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's usually d- not done by the central bank. That's done by other people. Mm-hmm. But central bank doesn't need to counterfeit. They can print it will. So that is also yeah. a form legal of counterfeiting. <laughs> yeah, it's legal counterfeiting. Yeah. The other counterfeit, the other form of corruption of money is just using it as a tool for surveillance and limiting its function as money. That's Mm. also a corruption of money, right? So if um, your bank account can be frozen, then it's not really money. It's Mm -hmm. been corrupted. It's not serving the purpose of facilitating human trade. And Mm -hmm. it's no longer being able to serve the function as money because Mm -hmm. it's not a way you can store your time and energy anymore, right? So Mm -hmm. money can be corrupted in so many ways. And this is why Bitcoin is so transformative because it can't be corrupted. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. 
I take it back to just private property, right? I mean, it's right there in the word private property, <laughs> private right. meaning it's yours. You don't need to tell anyone about it. You can do whatever you want with it. Obviously surveillance money is antithetical to that. And then property is just like something you own, right? That can't be taken from you and inflation, confiscation, capital controls, deauthorization, all these things are antithetical to property. So, uh, it's just not money at that point. Right. And so it's, yeah. as you said earlier, like if it's, if the state's using money as money, then they can draw on prosperity. But to the degree that they don't, you end up with this money substitute fiat complex that just is corrupt and therefore um, pathologized, I guess. Right. It's a sick economic system. Yeah. But I would say Bitcoin is probably the ultimate private property because mm -hmm. every other form of property can be taken away from you Yeah, uh, because Bitcoin is information. It is digital and it is fully abstract. Mm -hmm. It cannot be taken from you, right? It, if you can remember 12 words, then you have money. Mm -hmm. If you, if you have a house, someone can take your house, right? You're just kind of renting it from the government mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah. And anyone that has owned property knows that like, good luck changing or renovating your house without permission from somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Another way I've thought about the way I've thought about the definition of corruption is bending a publicly applied rule for private gain. So if there's like a rule that everyone's supposed to play by, but then you are inside of the rulemaking body somehow, right? That you either don't play by the rule or you break the rule or you twist it or whatever. And that seems consistent with this, um, this idea of inflation and confiscation and whatnot, right? It's, it's the money is supposed to function as private property, liquid private property for people. But then as soon as it doesn't fit your specific policy agenda or whatever it may be, well, you just take the private or the property out of private property. So it's, there's this inherent corruption to it that, I guess somewhat obviously just undermines the entire enterprise of civilization. Like if people don't have these things that do what they're supposed to do, then how can we get along with one another? Um, it's just like, if you try to play any other game and one guy or a few guys were changing the rules every few rounds to suit their own interest and, you know, uh, mess you up or, or, or um, take advantage of you basically that that game would not, there wouldn't be a consensus on that game for very long. Like the people being taken advantage of would want to abdicate. Um, and so it just, it's not a stable game environment. Um, well, it'll tend towards uh, destabilizing over time, but mm -hmm. the people that impacted or changed the rules want to keep, keep you distracted right? right that's why there's always a lot of interesting stuff going on to keep you busy and angry yes. about other things so you don't notice the more important things being trampled on i think you might be saying that a lot of the bullshit we see in the mainstream media then is part of distracting people from these deeper realities i would say so i mean a lot of that stuff and a lot of what goes on in the realm of politics is almost like reality television, right? It's mm -hmm. always very uh, exaggerated, very entertaining, and it's just there to keep your eyes on on the show and the performance instead of the underlying problems that are endemic to the system.
Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, okay. So I'd say we're pretty well aligned on all of that. What is it then? I guess it sounds maybe on the surface, a bit hypocritical of us to talk about nation state Bitcoin adoption. <laughs> Cause we're talking about this institution that has taken advantage of a lot of people through these means, but, um, and I agree actually that we do need kind of a bottom up plus top down approach to really drive to accelerate Bitcoinization to the greatest degree possible. How do you how do you unpack that for people? Because then it almost seems like, well, wait, you just said the nation state and the central bank is a big problem. Why would you want them to buy Bitcoin? So how do we how do you describe uh, the need for that top down push to people? Right. Yeah, this is something we hear a lot at Gen3, um, probably from very hardcore Bitcoiners or maybe, I don't know, anarchists. But uh, it's always like, why are, why do you want nation states to get into Bitcoin? We can, hmm. we can get Bitcoin and starve them out. But I just don't see that machinery going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that machinery is hungry for money, right? The the nation state machinery wants money. That's why you have taxation and everything else because mm-hmm. it has to feed itself. Now, if there are people that want to help affect change, I think it's worthwhile that you engage with them and educate and or even you make overtures to inform. Um, like if there's a policy debate or if there's a call for papers or things like that, if we can submit information about money, I think it's valuable Mm -hmm. to educate and enlighten. Mm -hmm. So it's not that uh, we want nation states to have Bitcoin, but I think they are going to want Bitcoin themselves because they they just want money, right? Bitcoin Mm -hmm. just happens to be money. And actually, a lot of the discussion we're having here, you could take Bitcoin out of the equation completely Mm -hmm. and still have a very detailed discussion about money without mentioning the word Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin just happens to be the best form of money. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're bringing it up. But the nation states will also want Bitcoin too, right? They're you're already seeing it in the US. They want to, they want to tax it. And there's this meme like, you know, Bitcoin is worthless. Pay tax on your Bitcoin, right? <laughs> so which which right. one is it? It's it yeah. it's probably Bitcoin is valuable and they want to tax yeah. it. But um because money is abstract, we're going back to the original money and the most pure form of money. So that is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the most pure form of money because it's intangible and abstract. But there are dangers that come with that too. Mm-hmm. Like you might think it's really cool that um, Bitcoin is information now and it can't be controlled can't be controlled or manipulated by anyone else. But you have to all realize that this is outside of the system. And the system has its own forms of money and assets and mm-hmm. valuable things, right? Stocks, property, bonds, these are and, and fiat currencies, these are all within the legacy system. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin sits outside of that system. So what happens when they want to to get that? I think it's a can of worms. Some people are probably thinking about it, but I'm not sure if it's on most people's top of their minds right now. Mm-hmm. But because money is abstract, like if um if the government says, you know, give me money or give me pay taxes on your property or your stocks or whatever, it's very easy for them to verify because that's all within their system. Mm-hmm. So they can 
easily tell like yeah you bought and sold this stock you right. own this house or this commercial property or you have this much in your bank account right it's something mm -hmm. they, they have a, a very clear view on mm -hmm. now for money that exists outside the system for bitcoin what happens there when they say you know robert you you have a, a thousand bitcoin and you know you owe tax on that or we want some of it mm -hmm. How do you prove you don't have a thousand Bitcoin? Uh, well, you typically have a boating accident. I don't know. Like uh, <laughs> that, we, we joke about that, but what if they just insist that you have it, right? Yeah. And you haven't paid it. But what if you don't have it or you had it and you really did lose it? That gets murky. And I don't yeah. think any of the the laws or regulations we have are equipped to deal with this because mm money has just made a quantum leap forward mm. becoming this pure informational entity mm. that is outside a legacy system but all the laws and regulations and constructs we have have been engineered to deal with things in the system or, mm -hmm. or that are physical mm -hmm. so this is a big can of worms that i don't think we've dealt with yet and i think for what we're doing at jan3 working on nation state adoption and mass adoption mm. it does solve it in some way because we will work with you know regulators and say like you're going to have to just treat money as money and not uh, just accept it's outside of your system because mm -hmm. it is like you can't do anything about it you can't change the system you can't seize it and you can lock someone up for an indefinite amount of time but you can't get something that they don't have right mm -hmm. and you can't prove they don't they, they have it or don't have it so you yeah. have to accept that. So the whole system has to change and become much more voluntary. And that means well, other things like changing the whole tax system too. Like We can discuss that later if you want, but I think the mm -hmm. only way that they can tax is really through property. And mm -hmm. that inlines more incentives. Like why do you want to buy a property or invest in property? Well, it's because you believe in the country and the tra trajectory they're on. And you believe that they are going towards prosperity, not away from it. That's why you're going to invest in that. And you're happy mm -hmm. to pay tax on that because the entire system for property rights is protecting you. Mm -hmm. So that's a, the best alignment of incentives. Anything else, because money is now intangible, it's mm -hmm. going to have a lot of holes in any enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to change. But um, what we're doing to get more Bitcoin adoption and nation state level adoption is to prevent these types of witch hunts, like going after you, Robert, and saying, give us your Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. See, witch hunting only works if there are only a few witches. But mm -hmm. if everyone is a witch, <laughs> then there is a witch hunt. Right. So you can say, we're trying to make everyone into a witch by having them <laughs> get Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a great, it's almost like another aspect of Bitcoin well, Bitcoin's a first in a lot of ways, but one of those ways is that it's this non-state, globally transactable form of property, right? That never existed before. You could say gold, right? Gold was the closest corollary that, you know, if you could physically defend your gold and you could move it around the world, well, so be it. You had something that was like non-state property, but gold's physical. So that's very cumbersome to do that with. Um, and it, because it's that, right? Because it's a non-state form of property, it's like a check on the potential overgrowth of the state. Or if, as you said, if people don't think, if if the 
if your opinion is that the state is not headed towards prosperity, well, then you would just take your purchasing power in Bitcoin and go to a state that is headed towards prosperity. And so that simple power for citizens to say no, you know, especially to monopolists like the state, it's very, it puts, it seems like it's going to tilt nation states back towards like a, not back towards, towards a free market paradigm where they actually have to be a little more accountable to the preferences of their customers. Otherwise the customer will say F you and go elsewhere. Yeah. And that's like the very simple, subtle change we needed is like just people, the relationship between people and their states to be more like the relationship between people and every other vendor, right? Where you can say no to a producer and that keeps that producer honest. The risk of losing business keeps the producer honest. Yeah. And pretty um, much. Yeah. But I think we have to also try to accelerate that too, because yeah. what you said is completely right. But there's a but. <laughs> they can also stop you from leaving. So the sooner that we get them onto a Bitcoin standard and we mm -hmm. align their incentives with Bitcoin, the better, because then they'll be less likely to do something like that, like restrict freedom of movement. Right. And you might say that's impossible, but we just finished the COVID pandemic mm -hmm. where they restricted freedom of movement for a number of years. So that is not outside of the realm of the capabilities or the willpower to do. Mm -hmm. So we have to try to get more nation states onto this Bitcoin standard, align them with Bitcoin and get their thinking into the Bitcoin ethos and mm -hmm. free market mm -hmm. economy. So I think if you can get them to have Bitcoin, like El Salvador is buying Bitcoin, or if you can get a nation state to mine Bitcoin, you're better able to align their incentives with the network and with the principles behind money. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, when people talk to me about this, I always try to pierce that veil of, well, it's easy to say what a nation state will do or won't do, but ultimately all of these uh, groupings of people, whether it's a nation state or a book club, like they're composed of individuals. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're ultimately doing, right? Is we're, we're communicating the idea and ethos of Bitcoin to individuals. And then those individuals in turn propagate that message to other individuals. And that is what it's, I, the rough analogy is like, you're kind of giving the nation state a poison pill in a way that it, once this idea permeates the nation state, like it, it has to become a more honest organization, basically it has to have fair, more fair dealings with their customers. So it's, I, I guess it's easy to think in static ways like, Oh, you know, we need to destroy nation states totally. It's like, well, not really. We need some form of political structure. I mean, if history is any indication, it's more about what is the relationship between that political order and the individual and Bitcoin is just something that tilts the favor towards the individual and away from centralized power. So it's not, it definitely doesn't seem like a bad thing to me on any level. Um, yeah. as someone that is guilty of demonizing nation states and central banks all the time, I still think it's useful to try and get that idea integrated into them. Well, there's, there's only two things you can do. One is you hope that they, they fail and they go away or yeah. you can try to fix it. And yeah. I would say, let's try to fix it because they're not going away anytime soon. Not that I can see yeah. unless it's total societal collapse and 
you know, everything from it disappears <laughs> at the same time. But I'm not sure exactly how good that would be on whole. So, you know, we will do what we can do, which is try to fix it and work yeah. with people. Because as you said, you know, the government or the state is a big machine, but mm. it's made up of individuals like you or me. And yeah. there's no reason why we can't talk to those people and try to affect change. And change can come just like we've seen with El Salvador. Yeah. And hopefully we see with Canada too. We have Pierre Polyev who has yeah. a, a good background and basis of thinking on what sound money is or what money is yeah. and fiscal responsibility. Like these are pretty basic things. Like you yes. think uh, it's it's a fundamental requirement for anyone in office, but not really. So, you know, I'll take these small incremental wins and I'll take the the gradual attempts to fix because that's the best we can do really. Yeah, absolutely. And Pierre has been on the show before and it really is just getting back to the roots of Western civilization, right? It's really not, we're not even advocating for anything new. I mean, I guess Bitcoin is technically new, but the principles that undergird Bitcoin are as old as civilization itself, right? Just let people keep what they earn. Don't inflate the money supply, uh, individual rights and responsibilities, all these things. Um, so yeah. I mean, theoretically, if human civilization was disciplined on a whole, we could have probably used gold much in the same way as Bitcoin. Sure. But we're not. So we right. need Bitcoin. <laughs> right. We need the rules enforced with a massive amount of energy. Otherwise, we're going to change them and yes. we're going to corrupt it. Yes. 100%. And it has to be enforced, preferably with a massive amount of energy, not from a center, right? That That's... Mm -hmm. What I think John Vallis said this, that Bitcoin's the first time in human history that we can enforce a rule set absent a central power. Yeah. And like, that's a big sentence unpacked, but I mean, that's really kind of what it is. Like we never had the, the level playing field other than one that was enforced and the enforcer tended to make the playing field not level to his advantage over time. Yeah. So back to the nature of Bitcoin being like an incorruptible base layer. I'm very pessimistic on human flourishing without Bitcoin. I just don't think we could make it uh, much yeah. further without it. I think so too. And I think others will come to that same realization if we're willing to go out and engage with them and, and you know, share the information that we have. Like we're mm. a very small group. Like we're the, the early, early adopters, a tiny, tiny niche. And mm. if we can get more people interested in Bitcoin or fully understanding Bitcoin, because definitely the mainstream is not helping with it. Right. So yeah, we can probably make things better. And I think getting a nation state's incentives aligned with Bitcoin also benefit Bitcoin in some way. So we've seen in China that a nation state can attack Bitcoin in terms of say mining, they can mm -hmm. ban mining and disrupt the network. But we've learned also that the network can recover from that quite quickly it's mm -hmm. generally the 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 participants in the network that suffer so in the case of china it was the miners that suffered right but the network as a whole was fine mm -hmm. and in fact miners elsewhere like in north america benefited greatly from the ban because they were mining at very low difficulties and they're mm -hmm. banking bitcoin right but if a nation state was mining Bitcoin themselves, they're far less incentivized to attack the network. Mm -hmm. If people in the government understand Bitcoin and they believe Bitcoin is money and they hold Bitcoin, it's less likely they'll try to push forward regulations banning, you know, unhosted wallets or things like that, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a 
a big benefit to what we do that's disproportionate to the effort that mm. we put in because you can have a lot of dumb regulations and it can slow down Bitcoin. It can harm people in that country that have adopted or mm -hmm. would adopt Bitcoin, but Bitcoin itself won't be affected, but we can make people's lives better by having not stupid policies put in place. Yeah. Right. That's a great point. Um, yeah. So you mentioned this offline before we started, I think you were at um, the Miami event we did last year with Jordan Peterson. And at one point he mentioned Bitcoin is an experiment. Um, and you took issue with that. I, I mean, I think we've sort of laid out quite uh, strongly why Bitcoin's not an experiment today, but what was it about, what is it in particular that you take issue with when you hear that when someone says Bitcoin is an experiment? Like, where did you draw the line? When did Bitcoin stop being an experiment and start becoming whatever it is today? Well, it's difficult to say where, the, where that line is. Mm -hmm. but I would say if you look at it from fundamentals, Bitcoin is not an experiment because it is a restoration of private money mm. and a bearer asset. And that's what we've had throughout most of human civilization, mm. right? We didn't have central banking until very recently, mm. and we didn't have fiat money until very recently. And I, I think the form factor of Bitcoin, that it is Bitcoin and it is software, doesn't really matter. The key mm. thing here is that it's a bearer asset. Mm. So that's not an experiment at all. Private money is not an experiment at all. And I think it just goes to show how early we are and how much work there is to do to educate people. Mm. Because people like Jordan still think it's an experiment, but right. fiat money is the experiment. Central banking is the experiment. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great... The, the four, I guess we, we could argue playing devil's advocate on behalf of Jordan, perhaps, that he's saying the form factor is the experiment. But what you're saying is private money on a whole is like the norm of human history. So Bitcoin, in a way, is just getting us back to what we've always had, even though it's in a new form factor, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Like, if it wasn't Bitcoin, if it was something else, I don't know, let's call it um, orange paper, it could <laughs> do the same function and it would be just as good. Mm -hmm. The key here is that you restore what money is, and that is something yeah. that people can custody and take possession of themselves easily and mm -hmm. spend themselves without any interference. That's mm -hmm. really what the most important aspects of money are. Yes, and that that's a great framing, I think, for what at least my conviction on Bitcoin is essentially that. Like you study the history of money and it's like, oh, humans have always sought this type of asset in all conditions and all situations everywhere worldwide. So it's like, you're basically betting that people will still continue to seek that type of asset or this, this collection of monetary properties, let's say, and a monetary technology to be more specific. Um, that's really hard to fathom how you would stop that when everyone in the world is just going to seek those particular properties and a particular technology. Uh, it's hard to formulate a way that a central power would, would stop that that expression of individual preference. Yeah, I don't think it can be stopped, but they will try. And CBDCs, I guess, are their, their next best effort, mm -hmm. even though it's a very bad effort, but it's still the next thing that they're going to try to push, right? Mm -hmm. Because 
I believe the masses think that if it's uh, digital money and it's marketed that way, they might see it as if it was a competitor to Bitcoin, even though we know it's not. Mm-hmm. But it might be enough to convince people that don't understand money that this is like Bitcoin. Right? Mm. We're still very early. Like, I, I don't think we fully realize how early we are, but yeah. uh, it, it might be enough to convince people that a CBDC is Bitcoin and they might buy it. Do you think that's the most viable attack vector on Bitcoin? Just this social layer or commingling the understanding, people's understanding with, you know, CBDC equals BTC, something like that? Well, I mean, it's the next thing that they're pushing right now, but people think uh, fiat money from a central bank is money. So it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't Mm -hmm. take a lot to convince people. So do you think that's an attack vector that won't hold up then? Not really. I mean, we can see examples again, like there are examples everywhere. You just have to look for them or pay attention. Um, So in Nigeria, they have the Enaira and the adoption rate was about (laughs) 0.5%. And if you look at the Enaira website, it said it's uh, money for the people and it's to make your life better. But when they hit the 0.5% adoption, they realized that it's not going to work if it's optional. So they started to wage war against paper money and mm-hmm. they're trying to demonetize, remove money out of circulation and limit your withdrawals of mm. paper money. So it, it's always going to be optional until they realize it doesn't work. And mm. that's when things get uh, more totalitarian and, and dark. Right. But um, you know, there are ways we can fight that. Bitcoin adoption is one thing, but even again, disregarding Bitcoin, you can have a fight for paper money still. So I read in the news this morning that Switzerland was going to hold a referendum um, on enshrining the right to have paper money in in, in their laws. So you, you can still fight for bearer assets and not Bitcoin. But of course, you know, one step at a time, maybe their, mm. their next referendum will be for Bitcoin as legal tender. Who knows? Yeah. But you have to take it one step at a time. But yeah, CBDCs, I think, are the next big prong of attack to maintain control on the system. And it would give them perfect control because they can now see every transaction, not just at, at the top level, but they can see individual retail transactions too. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we saw Bitcoin trading at a significant premium in Nigeria following those events too. So it's sort of a microcosm of what you would expect, right? You, the tighter you squeeze or try to control, the more people will slip between your fingers into money that can't be controlled, something like that. Yeah, and it's definitely destined to fail because people want real money. And with the advent of Bitcoin and the transformation of money into something really abstract and digital, this is nothing you can do about it. And I think one of the things we can do to accelerate that failure or accelerate the adoption of Bitcoin is just to educate people on the ultimate outcomes of that system, right? If uh, money is information, then what are you going to do? There's really nothing. You can ban VPNs, but even that won't get you full control over the money supply anymore because you have to monitor people's activities. You have to basically put cameras in people's homes and watch what they're doing at all times that they didn't generate 12 words some in some corner of their house right so you can you can kind of see how ridiculous it will get if you really want to control this thing because you can't 
yeah, there's too many enforcement points to do it. To do it, basically, yeah. Uh, reminded by the old quote, there's nothing more unstoppable than an idea whose time has come. And yeah. certainly seems like Bitcoin's time has come. Um, Samson, man, it's a great conversation. Uh, really enjoy talking about all these angles with you. Um, happy that you guys are doing what you're doing over at Jan3. If there's anything I can do to be of support, please let me know. Um, would you like to let my audience know where they could find you on the internet? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Excelion. And lately, I'm spending more time on Noster. Um, and I, I think you can look me up by uh, Excelion at gen3.com. I think you can search for your handle and the domain you verified at. But yeah, that's basically the best place to follow me and what I'm doing with Jan3. And Robert, I hope we can collaborate on some of these things like we were talking about earlier, maybe Venezuela. Yeah, I love the sound of that. Um, you, you'll be in Miami? I will. Okay, well, I will see you there. All right, sounds good. Thanks, man.